Hey, welcome back to the Rocket Launch Pod. I'm Nate Ray, writer for The Donut, and this is part two of my conversation with author David W. Brown, whose new book, The Mission, is in stores now. If you haven't yet listened to part one, I highly recommend you do. David has a wealth of information and insights about the American Space Program, and it's just a treat listening to him. In this episode, he'll be offering a preview of his book, as well as a look into what it took to breathe life into a story of such magnitude. I'll also be giving my official review of the mission, so stick around until the end. Okay, let's do it. I'm Nate Ray, joined once again by David W. Brown, and this is the Rocket Launch Pod. OTC is go. Thank you, is go. OTC is go. Copy us is go. Houston flight is go. Launch director, NTD, our launch team is ready to proceed at this time. Ignition sequence start. Five, four, three, two, one. Liftoff. Liftoff on Apollo 11. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us with the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them. Liftoff, Americans return to space as Discovery clears the tower. It's gone, the shuttle, and that those aboard it could not have and did not survive. Booster ignition and liftoff of Endeavor, completing Kibo and fulfilling Japan's hope for an out-of-this-world space laboratory. Ignition, liftoff of the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon, go NASA, go SpaceX, Godspeed, bottom dog. Okay, I want to give you a little taste of what the mission is like, so I've asked David to read a few excerpts from his new book throughout our conversation. Think of it as a sort of book club. Settle in, get cozy with a warm drink, whether that's a hot cocoa or a brandy, and... Oh, wait, hold on. Let me see if I can get a fire going for us. Okay, there we go. Comfy? Good. Once again, here's David W. Brown. It wasn't enough to make the styrofoam solar system over his bed. The boy needed toothpicks, too, for the moons, and he pressed them into each planet, none for Mercury or Venus, one for Earth, two for Mars. He puzzled over Jupiter, the dozen discovered being too many toothpicks, so he accounted only for the four found by Galileo in 1610. The moons were made of crumpled masking tape, which he skewered and placed into orbit. And while little Europa wasn't labeled or anything, it was with young Robert Papalardo even then, on a two-inch wooden spike in a foam world of orange and red. When I set out to write the mission, I recognized very early on that what the women and the men in this book were doing was extraordinary. And also that the average reader probably had an impoverished understanding of what goes into the exploration of space, and also the timelines involved in exploring another body. It's not just a launch and then we have a picture of Pluto. The New Horizons mission there started in the 1980s, and we didn't see that image until 2015, I believe. That's a long time, and that's a hard journey. And I wanted to make sure the reader understood not only the, the facts of exploration 
In this case, the mission is about the exploration of Europa, which is one of Jupiter's moons. I wanted to make sure they understood the emotional stakes involved, which were ones of highs and lows, but always done with a sense of earnestness and sincerity. The only way you can do that, I believe, is to approach the subject with sort of a beginner's mind. Space exploration is amazing. And it's so easy and almost so lazy to see any setback that befalls NASA or any space agency and then throw your hands in the air and say, we can't do anything, right? So in the late 90s, uh, NASA accidentally lost two spacecraft on Mars. And immediately, the public was like, what are we doing up there? We can't do anything. We can't even land on Mars. Whereas I believe we should have been saying, oh my God, we almost landed on Mars. And I wanted to make sure when I wrote this book that I approached it with zero cynicism and zero irony. I wanted people to feel that joy that you feel when you're a child and you read picture books about space. Because there are very nuanced discussions to have. But at the end of the day, these are extraordinary achievements done for the sake of humankind. We're not going to win any wars by exploring Mars or by exploring Europa, but humankind and the knowledge that we have of ourselves and our place in the solar system and in the galaxy and in the universe will have been enhanced. We're going to know more than we did before, and that's why we're doing it. And that's not the sort of thing you should just sort of approach with a jaded eye and scoff at, I believe. So as an artist, I made sure to approach it very carefully. I write as part of what's called the New Sincerity Movement, and I decided to write this with complete sincerity and to put the reader in the heads of the people actually doing the work, not with all the preconceived notions that we have, not with all the questions of why are we even doing this? Why do we even have a NASA, right? That's not something that the characters in this book are asking themselves. They know fundamentally why we're doing these things. And they have a childlike enthusiasm, and I wanted to make sure that the reader was put in that mental place as well. Thirteen point eight billion years ago, three minutes in fact after the universe began, hydrogen nuclei formed. Good old atomic number one, the lightest element on the periodic table. Until then, space itself had been bounding outward from a single point to the entire observable universe. It cooled into a quark soup, quarks came together to form baryons, and electrons were new in town and turning heads. It was a busy three minutes. When hydrogen nuclei stepped onto the stage, though not into the spotlight, light as we see it didn't exist yet, so too did those of helium, lithium, and beryllium, numbers 2, 3, and 4 respectively, though their parts were small indeed, and it took another 400,000 years of universal cooling before the nuclei could draw in those eligible electrons and form stable, bona fide atoms. Over time, those atoms met, became gravitationally attracted to one another, and formed clouds in space called nebulae. A trillion galaxies or more formed from the clouds over the next nine billion years, and one of them was spiral-shaped and destined to be called the Milky Way. In this case, I decided early on that I wanted my mom to be able to read this book and enjoy it. And that's a challenge, not because my mom is not very intelligent, but because if you don't follow space, if you don't care about space science, 
you can't really take for granted that the reader knows the difference between an asteroid and a black hole. Like, you have to explain all of these things as you go. That said, you want the sophisticated scientists to be able to pick it up and say, oh, that's pretty engaging. So it was a very delicate balancing act to do it. So this is a book about scientists, but this is not a science book. This is a book about people at crossroads and how different people at these crossroads in their lives deal with them, how they move forward, and what can come of those decisions. Okay, so if you remember, the subtitle to the mission is pretty lengthy. I'll play it again. The mission, or how a disciple of Carl Sagan, an ex-motocross racer, a Texas Tea Party congressman, the world's worst typewriter saleswoman, California mountain people, and an anonymous NASA functionary went to war with Mars, survived an insurgency at Saturn, traded blows with Washington, and stole a ride on an Alabama moon rocket to send a space robot to Jupiter in search of the second Garden of Eden at the bottom of an alien ocean inside of an ice world called Europa, parentheses, a true story. So, let's talk about that. Originally, the book did not have a subtitle. I am stridently anti-subtitle. I find that they almost never add anything to the book. You'll recall Stephen Hawking's very famous A Brief History of Time. That book has a subtitle. You don't know what it is, and I don't remember what it is, but it does have one. But it added nothing. A Brief History of Time is a perfect title. So at the time, my book had no subtitle, and I decided early on that's the hill I was going to die on because the book writing process and certainly the editing process is a give and take. And I decided that was, that was one of the ones where I was going to put my foot down. After the first draft was completed and it, it went through the first edit, my editor came to me and said, you know, the marketing people feel like you need to have a subtitle. And I was like, I don't care. I don't want one. He was like, well, I understand that. And it's your prerogative, but you probably ought to take it seriously. And I said, I don't care. I don't want one. And he said, well, and so then I started ridiculing a great many subtitles that the publishers put out. And he said, here's what you don't understand. When somebody types any of the words in this subtitle into a search engine, this book is more likely to come up. This subtitle has the word NASA in it. Guess what? There's a chance that NASA will come up when you type it into Amazon or IndieBound or Google or whatever. And that's one reason why marketing people like it very much. It's just like another keyword that gets triggered. And I still said, I don't care. And he's like, just think about it. Now, my editor, Jeff Chandler, is a genius. And like every other suggestion that he made strongly, I said, no, no, that's a terrible idea. And then I slept on it. I was like, ah, he's right. So if they wanted a subtitle, I decided I would give them one. <laughs> And so the subtitle right now, I think, is something like 88 words long. It's a fun subtitle, and it certainly gives the reader an idea not only of the content of the book or the material in the book, right, the story being told, but it should give them an idea of sort of the yarn-spinning style of the story within. It's very hard to write a book that reads in a breezy manner. It should read like it was very easy to write. Uh, it was very difficult to write, and that's the paradox there. But there's a saying that the subtitle is a promise to the reader. Like, every book has to live up to its subtitle. I can say with perfect honesty, this book lives up to its subtitle. Todd May got his first job at 14, and from then on never went more than a week without working one place or another. 
The gas station job wasn't the first time he worked, of course. During summers as a boy, he had mowed lawns in his Fair Hope, Alabama neighborhood and built up a pretty good business, one or two yards a day. This was just his first official job, and he made two fifteen an hour checking oil, pumping gas, cleaning windshields. The gas station job didn't last forever, and he next found work at a farm, where he threw bushels of new potatoes onto trucks for 14 hours a day, five days a week, side by side with migrant workers. He painted houses. He worked in a cement plant. He worked for a fiberglass pipe company in Biloxi. He worked in a chicken processing facility. He was the only white guy there, and he sat there all day long grabbing chickens as they passed by and hanging them up on hooks. So it was that before he was old enough to buy cigarettes, let alone beer, Todd had learned that he was a lunch pail guy, how to appreciate hard work and the people who did it. And he learned also that he was a pack mule, that he could work from sunup to sundown too, sweat, do manual labor, and not think twice about it. And all that, the hanging of chickens, the hauling of cement sacks, the loading of potatoes, the scrubbing fingers free of fiberglass shards, almost prepared him to work for the new NASA head of science, Alan Stern. I want readers to finish this book, put it down, and say, I didn't know nonfiction could do that. I didn't know creative nonfiction was a thing. And I would hope that the book has an effect on space journalism more broadly, which I think has become a bit ossified over the years. Because when you cover something as amazing and extraordinary as space exploration, it's very easy to grow complacent in your narrative style. There's some pretty bad science journalism out there. So I would like to think that people will come away inspired by what human beings can achieve, recognizing that these were never easy decisions and these were never easy challenges that they faced. Every day was, it was a crucible. And it's funny, when I first started interviewing the men and women who would be featured in this book, very frequently people were like, well, I've got a half hour I can talk to you. And we would start talking, and three hours later, they were like, can we talk again tomorrow? Because they had been in the trenches for so long, they had never stopped and taken stock of all they had done and all they had achieved. And they were always very well aware of how far they had to go and how far they still have to go. But I felt almost like a therapist listening to them because once they started talking, every five minutes were laughs or tears because they were describing their lives and examining their lives in ways that they had never done before. And I hope I captured that in the narrative because I was deeply moved by the experience and I personally was transformed by it. The thing that first hooked me were the people. These were the smartest people in the world doing something that was almost certainly not going to pay off. They were just on a hopeless endeavor and if you're the smartest person in the world, you know that. Everybody that I interviewed was way smarter than me, and they all knew the same thing. This is just not going to work. It's not going to happen. But they did it anyway. What kind of person does that, right? Even if it did work, because of the timescales involved, there was a good chance that they would be dead by the time the questions that they set out to answer would even be answered. And that's why you do science in the first place, right? You have a question you want it answered. What is the nature of Europa? Does Europa have an ocean? Is there life in that ocean? By the time the life question is answered, there's a good chance that we're all gonna be dead, but they dedicated their lives to putting the building blocks in place for the next 
generation of scientists to be able to answer that question. What kind of person does that? Right? We live in a society of immediate gratification. I'm no better about that than anyone else. And the men and women in this book have dedicated themselves to something that lends no immediate gratification. In fact, may lend no gratification at all. Why? What kind of person does that? So that fascinated me. But when we talk about the discovery of life on another world, not like microbes that existed three billion years ago on Mars, right? But complex life. The ocean of Europa is three billion years old at least. It has experienced, to the best of our knowledge, no extinction level events as Earth has experienced multiple times. It has all of the ingredients necessary for life. Life on Earth began in the oceans. If there's life on Europa, it might be microbes. It might be fish. It might be sea monsters. We have no idea. But if that life exists, it changes everything. It changes religion, right? Because that's a second Garden of Eden, two planets over. It changes philosophy. We'll now know, are we alone? Where did we come from? How did this happen? Science itself will be fundamentally transformed, and biology, the implications of finding complex life on another world and studying it, well, it's inconceivable to me. I think it's inconceivable to a lot of people, and I don't think we've fully internalized what that means. It's a redrawing of the food chain. One of the points that I make in the closing chapter of the book is, if I go to the grocery store and I buy a fish and I eat it, on some level, of course, eating meat is not justifiable, and I recognize that. Um, I think in the long term, we'll probably we'll all be vegetarians. But I believe, as a species, we clawed our way to the top of the food chain. We earned that right. So that fish, my ancestors paid for that fish, and so I can eat it. But what if we find a fish on Europa? Could we eat it? I mean, this is a silly question. But it's also, it speaks to what it means to be a living entity in the universe. Because we didn't claw our way to the top of the European food chain. Does that even count as an animal? What is this creature that we would now be holding? Could I saute it I mean, and, and then have it for dinner? I don't know. But these are questions that philosophers are going to have to answer. These are questions that obviously I cannot, but I can raise the questions. And I believe the deck is reshuffled once life is discovered on another body, and complex life in particular. And that's the implication of the exploration of Europa. Moreover, when we look at space exploration, can you imagine a more galvanizing purpose than meeting our new neighbors, right? That probably lived there before us. We're the new neighbors in the solar system. I believe, though I don't know, but I have to believe that once complex life is discovered on another world, NASA will have a purpose unlike any it has ever had. The human adventure is exciting, but people grow bored with it very quickly. Robotic exploration is incredible, but it's still slightly abstract for most people beyond pretty pictures of Saturn's rings. Life, that's something everybody gets, and that's something I believe everybody's gonna to wanna to know more answers about. Because just as I mentioned earlier, by studying Venus, we know more about climate change on Earth. By studying life on another world, what will we learn about ourselves? So I have read the mission cover to cover, and now that you've heard from David, I wanted to offer my official Rocket Launch Pod review. 
The Mission by David W. Brown is a story about exploring Europa, one of Jupiter's 63 moons, but its premise is distinctly terrestrial, in more ways than one. Carefully and methodically following the careers of an impressive cast of characters who have dedicated their lives to enhancing humanity's understanding of the solar system, Brown masterfully weaves this narrative in a manner that parallels the assemblance of Marvel's Avengers, pinpointing the scientists, politicians, and bureaucrats at the exact moments in their lives in which they can no longer deny the persistent beckoning of the unexplored cosmos, then tracing their steadfast and delightfully intertwining progress as childhood dreams of distant galaxies turn into painstakingly researched theses and degrees, then later into mission proposals and spacecraft hardware. When the unstoppable forces of academic and engineering know-how meet the immovable objects of unwavering red tape and perpetually dissatisfying budgets, Brown maintains the ever-burning ember of needing to know that drives his dramatis personae toward the ultimate objective, sending a mission to Europa, which is tantalizing in the way that only a distant, frozen heavenly body expelling the contents of its subsurface ocean into the vacuum of space can be. With its eyes cast skyward, this work of nonfiction, in many ways a modern heroic poem celebrating the extraordinary men and women studying humanity's final frontier, remains nevertheless fixed in terra firma, as Brown carefully parses the complex argot of rocket science for the layman, the fruit of his labor being a book that both the seasoned astronomer and the insatiable stargazer will enjoy. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rocket Launch Pod, a podcast from The Donut. A very big thank you to David Brown for joining me for this two-part conversation. His new book, The Mission, published by Custom House, is in stores now. If you're interested in learning more about David, please check out his website, dwb.io. That's dwb.io. Audio for this episode came from the NASA Audio Archives, the Ronald Reagan Foundation, the CBS News Archives, and SpaceX. I'm Nate Ray, and I'll see you next time. The International Space Station, as a science project, is probably the greatest boondoggle in the history of the United States. $100 billion, we're not getting $100 billion worth of science from the International Space Station. I know a lot of people are going to disagree with that, but that's the truth. However. The reason it's an international space station is because when the Soviet Union collapsed, we had to give those Russian rocket scientists something to do. And we had to make sure that they didn't start freelancing. So we were paying them to build hardware. In the process, for the bargain of the century, we wrote a check and bought the entirety of the Russian aerospace sector. We knew all of their secrets. So as an espionage endeavor, it was a fabulous deal.